You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR and Uprise Radio would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, the true owners, caretakers and custodians on the land that we are broadcasting from. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. And we'd like to pay tribute and acknowledge all the Aboriginal people that are listening uh, to our show today. We recognise that this is unceded land that we work and live on. Always was, always will be. towards the online technologization of our methods of communication, work, study, pastimes, and doom scrolls obviously comes with the increased capacity and threat of surveillance, digital exploitation, and loss of privacy. These concerns intensified during the pandemic, but alongside the emergence of new laws that encroach on our privacy, we saw the doubling down of the important work of groups like Digital Rights Watch, Melbourne Activist Legal, and the Police Accountability Project to ensure that our digital rights and privacy does not fade into obscurity, and to continue to apply pressure on those who would oversee the whittling away of our digital rights. Digital Rights Watch was formed in 2016 and has since been keeping check on the state of digital rights in Australia, presenting and reporting internationally, providing expert advice and submissions on policy, as well as contributing to UN reports in the civil and political rights space. Today, to discuss the current state of digital rights in so-called Australia, we're joined by Sam Floriani, Program Lead at Digital Rights Watch. Hi, Sam. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so Digital Rights Watch is hosting an online event this coming Thursday uh, called the State of Digital Rights, a 2021 retrospective. I'm wondering if you could point out a few of the more concerning events over the last year in regards to digital rights. Absolutely. I mean, where do we even start? It was a huge year for digital rights um, and for any you know, activists in this space or anyone working in tech policy. Um, there was just so much happening, as you mentioned, because, like sort of um, uh, amplified because of the pandemic and we were all online. Well, not all of us, but more and more of us were online having to live more and more parts of our lives online. And so I feel like it was a year where people really started to pay a lot of attention to how we interact with technology and the kinds of ways that that can go wrong. So what we're doing on Thursday is we're hosting this uh, event, which is a launch event for an, a report that we've put together. So each year we like to gather writers and academics and technologists and activists to reflect on everything that happened over the, the previous year and to kind of analyze the state of digital rights. So the event will be launching that and we'll hear from some of the contributors um, talking about some of their pieces. But in terms of their like key issues, 
I think there were sort of three overarching things that happened over the course of 2021, which really sort of laid the sort of landscape for our digital rights in Australia. So the first one is that there's just been kind of a, a real like increase and uh, emphasis placed on surveillance. So we've seen that come out in things like uh, the Identify and Disrupt Act, which contains all kinds of really intense and invasive surveillance powers. Um, we also saw the introduction of a new uh, reform process into Australia's digital surveillance laws. So for those who don't know, we have a huge and complex sort of web of um, surveillance laws and national security laws that are really complicated um, and, you know, are really quite broad and vague. So there's this reform process happening at the moment, which uh, started last year, which is all about um, streamlining that, which, you know, is fair enough, but it also, the sorts of things that they're proposing um, in the name of making it easier for uh, intelligence and law enforcement agencies to be able to conduct surveillance does threaten our, our human rights. So that's a huge area. Another area that we saw heaps of stuff happening was the online safety space. So I'm sure listeners would have seen the government had really sort of took up this, this narrative of wanting to protect uh, vulnerable people online, very much this women and children kind of rhetoric about keep, keeping people safe online, which is, is fair enough. There are lots of harms that happen online. There's no denying that. So but the, the trouble is, is that a lot of how that has progressed over the past year has been really framing it in like a, in a, in a, like a way, uh, like policing and moralism, um, really sort of thinking about content moderation and censorship as, you know, mechanisms for safety. And I put little air quotes around safety there rather than thinking about how can we do more like holistic harm reduction online? How can we empower marginalized communities online? Um, instead, we just kind of defaulted to this kind of pearl clutching, um, political point scoring kind of uh, approach, which really is, is quite terrifying because it does impact all of us and how we can uh, interact online. So uh, just some examples of the sorts of things we saw was uh, the Online Safety Act um, was passed and that was hugely controversial legislation which contained all kinds of like really broad powers for the e-safety commissioner. You know, there, were, there was lots of outcry from uh, human rights groups and uh, sex worker organisations and um, other organisations who were really concerned about how this would infringe on, on our rights online. And with that, we've also seen a renewed, uh, I guess, commitment or, or um, favouring approaches like mandatory age verification online, using technology like facial recognition, um, and things like undermining uh, encryption, which is a really important digital security mechanism in order to be able to, uh, well, not in order to be able to, but under the umbrella of this surveillance safety uh, umbrella. And then lastly, sorry, this is a really long list, but then lastly, the, the, the final um, theme, I think, of last year was um, that there was this real notion of like government cracking down on big tech. Unfortunately, 
the way that that played out was that the efforts to regulate big tech kind of entrenched their power rather than challenging it. And I think a, a key example of that is the news media bargaining code, which feels like it happened forever ago, but that was um, at the start of 2021, which, you know, with all best of intentions to try to support um, media and, and journalism actually did very little to challenge surveillance capitalism, just kind of shifted who gets a slice of that pie. Thanks for going through, you know, the overarching issues within the report. I just want to jump back to the legislation, the Online Safety Act. Uh, and one of the things that you mentioned um, was about the age verification processes, and it is very much around, you know, surveillance. And so if I'm correct in understanding that it will require internet users to share more of their personal information uh, to these platforms in which they're engaging with, that then it removes the anonymity of, of what's important about being able to be online and I suppose like closes that bridge between the, the uh, person you might be online and how you interact and could have really like damaging effects um, for Absolutely. people you know, if their personal identities are shared um, in spaces that are harmless. Um, and I was also wondering, I suppose it's more of a comment than a question, but do you think that legislation like this has the potential to increase the propensity of cyber attacks and security breaches um, just as a, as a result of then it being legislated that people have to give this information and so we know that it's there? Yeah. Oh, there's so much in that. That's an excellent little um, combination of questions in that. Um, firstly, anonymity. That was a huge issue in 2021, and I imagine it will continue to be an issue moving forward. Digital Rights Watch has been very vocally uh, pushing to protect anonymity and pseudonymity online because so many people use it as a safety mechanism. And so framing um, anonymity as something that causes harm. Like, yes, it is complicated, but but attacking anonymity as a way to increase online safety is nonsensical because it also undermines online safety. So that's quite frustrating to have those kinds of um, debates over and over again. But that really um, that was a really key part of um, also the online. Uh, sorry, the uh, anti trolling. Bill, I get my bills mixed up because there's so many. Um, the anti-trolling bill was all about unmasking an, an, an anonymous users as well. And um, a lot of the online safety stuff, as you mentioned, also has this real focus on, on unmasking anonymous users based on the assumption that that is where abuse and harassment comes from. Now, we've worked quite a bit with a few academics and experts in this area, and the research doesn't really back that up. A lot of abuse and harassment online happens from people with named accounts. Um, you know, you only have to look at the Facebook real names policy, and anyone who's on Facebook, I'm sure, has seen all kinds of awful things said online with people, you know, very happy to have their, their real name attached to it. So it really does fall flat as an argument. In terms of age verification, um, that's alarming in, in multiple ways. One of them is that anonymity aspect. The other is that, as you mentioned, all of the sort of main ways that you would technologically implement something like age verification do require additional personal information to be provided. So that might be um, 
you know, extra details that you enter into a form at a really basic level, or it might be that you upload um, some official ID, or it might even be something like a facial recognition, which um, would uh, either, either match you to a database to confirm your age, or there's some age assurance technology that would essentially guess based on your facial structure, uh, whether or not you are 18 or over. So all of those options are invasive and bring up all kinds of problems when it comes to privacy for one, but also, as you mentioned, security. The more information that these platforms hold, the more risk we're at if, if something goes wrong. If there's a data breach and they have your official ID, then that is a much you know, worse situation than if they just have you know, your email address. Um, and it doesn't necessarily make it better if the government has this information because, I mean, I don't think I would be the only person who would be uncomfortable with the idea of you know, the government being the kind of interface between myself, uh, access, me and the internet, me accessing restricted materials, because that's the kind of stuff that they're wanting to do this for primarily, things like pornography. So <laughs> I don't really want the government peeping in on that, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> I wonder, um, <clears throat> sorry, I wonder if you can elaborate, Sam, on, it just seems Australia is so backwards in understanding and, you know, perhaps that's giving a little bit too, you know, much to our government, but they seem, you know, they seem old, incompetent people, um, unable to understand, you know, the complexities of the internet or, you know, like you said before about trying to bring in force um Google and Facebook and other tech companies to have this backdoor to their programs, which they said couldn't exist. Um, you know, we've had previous prime ministers think that Malcolm Turnbull created the internet. You know, how does this, how do we fit into this context? And I guess, um, you know, how do you think this relates to this sort of perhaps incompetence, but, you know, we also have this, you know, we're a small population in the island that is just very backwards in understanding technology from a kind of policy um, position. How much do you think that that is kind of related to, you know, things like Pine Gap in Australia's relationship to Five Eyes Security Network, uh, you know, our influence from Rupert Murdoch, you know, these kind of overarching things, how much are these influencing this to be um, incompetence or deliberate, um, you know, manipulation of our, um, you know, justice and, and our laws in the country? Mm, oh, that's that's a really juicy question as well. Uh, there's a few things there. So I think it's really easy to look at some of these things and be like, oh, they're just idiots. What are they doing? They don't understand the internet. Um, they don't understand technology. And, and maybe to an extent that is true. I do think that there is a desperate need for increased technological competence across government. I think that would be a really welcome development because otherwise we just default to what industry says because that's where the expertise is. Um, so that's so that's a real problem. But the more cynical side of me would say that this is a repeated thing, right? This is not the first time that any of these things have happened. We see this these kinds of um, things happening time and time again. So like, at what point does it change from incompetence to just malicious intention? Um, it's, I'm not sure. I don't know exactly what the answer is there, but um, Justin Warren at EFA likes to tweet all the time saying that uh, sufficiently advanced incompetence is indistinguishable from malice. And I think that that's a worthwhile thing to keep in mind when we, when we see these things happening over and over again. 
Something that has happened over 2021 that comes through a bit in this report as well is that the coalition really loved framing all of these things as world-leading legislation. Very proud to roll out these um, these bills um, it, as though we were, you know, yeah, the, the first to do these amazing things. The trouble with that is it really have to be thinking about well, what direction are we leading the world in if that is the case, if we are indeed leading the world. And to be fair, looking overseas, there are there's clearly some interest in things like the news media bargaining code, which um, similar proposals are being discussed overseas. In the UK, they're also having a big debate about their online safety approach and age verification and encryption. And so when Australia passes things like this, when we lay that groundwork, it does sort of give other countries something to point at and be like, oh, well, they did it. So maybe it's legitimate. Maybe we should do that too. Maybe that's like a, a reasonable approach. Um, and I think that's quite alarming because, you know, I don't, I don't love the idea of us being uh, leaders in, you know, surveillance and censorship and, um, you know, really punitive use of technology. That's that's a terrible outcome. Um, but that that is certainly something that is happening in terms of how that relates to our, you know, those other things you mentioned before about Pine Gap and intelligence and whatnot. We are definitely, you know, part of an international intelligence community, um, and I think it's reasonable to say that Australia often is kind of like a bit of a kind of like a little guinea guinea pig like we can test out some pretty terrible things we don't have a comprehensive federal charter of human rights so we don't have to worry so much about um about that so I think that's all I think what you're getting at it being all connected I think that's I think that's a really fair um assessment FreeCR provides independent, community-owned media free of commercial influence and government bias. It is radio in your language, giving voice to your community. Like so many community organisations, we are feeling the continued impact of COVID on the day-to-day running of our organisation. Your financial support helps keep 3CR on the air and our communities connected and strong. To subscribe, visit our website at www.3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe, or you can call the station on 9419 8377 and press 1. 3CR and Uprise Radio, thank you for your continued support to keep community radio on the airwaves and keep it locked at 855 on your AM dial. It's really interesting what you were saying before about the news media and digital platforms mandatory bargaining code as making broadcasters complicit in surveillance capitalism even the public broadcaster and there was some interesting criticism last week about the abc's plan to have iview you know this flagship um viewing platform this national broadcaster have you know force users to provide an email address you know all under the name of tailing tailoring product suggestions to users and you know and to your and to your point before about these large organizations doesn't matter whether it's a giant corporation like samsung or a large state like australia your data isn't safe from them or others like there's been leaks you know could you just talk a little bit about some of the risks associated with targeted suggestions and the ABC's plan for its digital 
content? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I personally like quite hate personalization. <laughs> I think that it brings all kinds of terrible things with it. Um, I'm, you know, I understand that some people do like recommendation algorithms. They like, they like a platform that will suggest things that they might like. I get, I understand that some people do quite like that. The trouble is with something like the ABC, we don't need a national broadcast to be trying to replicate things like Netflix or um, other major platforms that are super data extractive and quite invasive with how they profile us and then feed us back um, particular content. I don't think that that is, aligns with the kinds of the kind of ethos that should be the ABC, in my opinion. You know, like I think part of the benefit of having something like the ABC is that you you can go and you can watch things without it being tied to your identity for one thing you can explore different ideas and maybe you'll be exposed to something that's a little bit different as soon as you add in a recommendation algorithm into that you're automatically going to narrow down the scope of what people are exposed to unless they go out of their way you know to to find other content so I think that there's something quite grim about um, what this does to, you know, maybe this is, maybe this sounds kind of dramatic, but I think if we like zoom out as, as like a bigger issue of recommendation algorithms and, and personalization, because I think it does sort of change the way that we interact with consuming news and um, content and sort of it impacts our our worldview, I think, is there is a really big risk there. Um, I think it also can make us kind of boring, right? And if you're listening to the same stuff on Spotify all of the time, um, that's how sad is that? There's so much in the world to enjoy. Are we really going to have our tastes dictated by machine learning algorithms? How bleak is that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's really interesting, Sam. You know, you wrote an article last month with Lizzie O'Shea for Overland or earlier this month about you know, and it's linked to this idea of, you know, the limits of, you know, your imagination, the limits of what you can find online. There's been such a dedicated push by the LMP to frame online security about protecting people from dangerous ideas, you know. And on the other side of that, you know, you've got the Labor Party perhaps laughably suggesting, you know, a digital pen license. But, but you know, and that is, you know, so <clears throat> old fashioned, you know, that it almost makes you swoon. You know, it's much broader than that. Like misinformation is a massive problem. Like we're seeing state actors engage in large misinformation campaigns targeting other state actors. You know, like this is not a mat. Like cyber war is a very real thing now, and it targets young people. You know, in this article, you're talking about. You know, it can't just be a digital pen license. It's got to be educating young people about the business models of big tech. You know, surveillance capitalism about you know, as opposed to these huge corporations, the liberating potential of open source platforms, the basics of how different software interacts online, like recommendation algorithms and advertisers. Do you have any ideas of how we would actually build a, how we would begin to build a curriculum that gets kids to understand some of this stuff? Or do you think they're actually a lot more ready for these lessons than perhaps some older generations? Mm, I, I think they are ready for a lot of these lessons. I think they're possibly more ready than um, the teachers are in a lot of in a lot of um, circumstances, which I think is a is a pretty big 
issue, like putting all of that, like teachers are under so much pressure to do, to be so much and to know so much and to do everything. And I'm not, I'm not sure that there is enough support for teachers to be able to deliver the kind of meaningful digital literacy education in schools that we currently need cuz cuz you know it is evolving quickly and it is quite complex for if you're if you're completely unfamiliar with it um so i definitely don't deny that that's that's a it's a challenge um i just i think something that that lizzie and i were trying to get at it that in that um article is that we really have space to be a bit more um you know think a bit more boldly about how this might go and to not just stop at education because one of the things that I think is really quite frustrating with the proposal is that it's all good and well if you educate um, these young people about being online but if you also have you know the infrastructure and the um, the regular like the regulatory environment that prioritizes surveillance that undermines undermines encryption that has you know really loves um content moderation and you know leans towards censorship like if all of those things are in place it doesn't matter how educated you are it the because the entire sort of landscape is hostile so I just feel like education is obviously a really key part and I would you know I don't think that there's anything like fundamentally wrong with the digital pen license although it is a bit naff um, as you said um, but it can't stop there I guess is the point that I, I would want to make um, one of the other things that you you mentioned that just sort of sparked this idea was is how this does these kinds of things do impact democracy I feel like that is a really key thing to draw out the way that we are able to access information the way that we're able to um, you know obtain news the way that we're able to interact with each other um, and form political views and have discussions about political views all of these things more and more often are happening online and so the way that governments and big tech platforms are uh, navigating that directly impacts how we're able to participate in democracy and how we, you know, our political outcomes. And that's, that's a really huge, that's a huge issue that I think um, more people, you know, would are ready to ready to dig into as an issue. And I think I think kids are ready too. I'm, I don't know, I have a lot of faith in them. I think one of the things, you know, where we've seen, I guess, our testing of some of our democracy and on people's eyes and certainly a real spread of misinformation recently is around um you know we almost got through a whole episode without mentioning it but you know with COVID and, and the whole pandemic and everything and I guess um you know I think it is really pertinent to again sort of relate this to Digital Rights Watch and I wonder you know not just about the context of um you know how those people are organizing online and you know I guess taking a lot of tactics and things from, you know, more progressive movements, but, you know, utilizing some of the words like freedom and civil rights and things like that, which obviously a lot of us on the left, uh, you know, have used that kind of language in, in things that we've done before, but it, it's also part of Digital Rights Watch's language as well about how you talk about the things that we don't have in Australia, you know, like you said before, the kind of context of things we don't have protecting us and the things that we want how do you, how do you, um, how's Digital Rights Watch kind of navigating that space at the moment, you know? Yes, no, I love that. Um, we have been talking a lot recently about 
reclaiming online safety. Like online safety does not need to mean surveillance, policing, monitoring and control. You know, I think there's a lot to be learned from abolitionist theory, for example, um, and applying that to technologies. And there are some a lot of people doing really interesting work in that space, particularly in the US, um, to, to, to really, you know, push this idea that surveillance does not equal safety, certainly not for everyone, certainly not if you're part of a vulnerable, marginalized or oppressed group. Um, you know, we do need to reclaim that language, language, I think, of safety. And even if that means, you know, pivoting to something like harm reduction, because safety is a really, really loaded, really loaded term. So no, I don't think that we need to just roll over and take the, the language and the terms that have been given to us by the government, by big tech corporations. I do think there is need for us to be a bit, you know, to, to take that back and push for something that is, you know, that is better, something that is more constructive and more inclusive and more um, fit for purpose in this, in this, in, in the internet interconnected world, really. Um, so in terms of what Digital Rights Watch is doing, we are really eager to continue to build the digital rights movement. Um, so, you know, that means we're uh, often consulting with governments, trying to provide feedback and things like that. We are, you know, um, doing public awareness raising and all kinds of knowledge sharing. So if people are interested, they can always head to our website or onto um, social media. Um, there's going to be more and more of that happening this year as we continue to grow this space, because I think it's it's not going away. It's only going to become more and more of an issue as, um, as time goes on. Absolutely. Unfortunately, Sam, I think we're getting to the end of time, but thank you so much for joining us. Um, Really Thank you for just, having me. What juicy, like chunky topics to talk about. <laughs> and a lot to cover in a short amount of time. But if anyone listening is interested in the event this coming Thursday, the 3rd uh, at 1pm, and it's you can find it on the Digital Rights Watch socials, and it's called the State of Digital Rights. Uh, be sure to join that online event. And we'll put some uh, information up about that on our Uprise Radio Facebook page. Sam, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.